You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Gearnook, get excited. It's also known as the Waller's gazelle or the giraffe gazelle. It's really just an unforgettable What can they teach us? And our listeners will, will, will love to do this because they can actually be participants. So they're using technology and anti-poaching. And I know we talked about this last week a little bit with the leatherbacks. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. All right, I'm going to have you tell everybody how to say this animal's name correctly, because <laughs> we're arguing about it, going back and forth. Well, not arguing, debating. Well, I think as with many animals, it depends on where you're from, how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. But there's the Jiranook mm-hmm. or the Garanook. Right. So regardless of how you say it, we just want you to know this name. And so I think Chris and I will try to try to stick with uh, Gearanooks because they are the most amazing antelope with the longest necks and the thinnest, mm-hmm. longest legs uh, and a darling face. It's like a, it's like if a springbok and a giraffe had a baby. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mix. Yeah. The name Gearanook means giraffe neck or necked in Somali. So mm-hmm. that's where it, that's where it came from. And I, it's just, it's such an amazing creature. And I've had the privileges of seeing some up close and personal and really watch their behavior um, under human care. Not in the wild. I've not seen any gear nook in the wild, but it's definitely now going to be a mission of mine. But they're really often underrated, right? They're not one of Africa's big five. Uh, and so I think they're a little bit lesser known. And so that's the goal on the podcast today is to get you excited about one of Africa's coolest antelopes. I mean, I'm obviously, anybody who knows me or knows this podcast, anything with hooves and horns mm-hmm. or antlers uh, is my jam. Right. And so I, lo- I, mean, I love sable antelope. I, I, I love them all. So this will be a fun podcast today for sure. Well, and we've seen these, you know, way back in the day. Yes. When we went to that conservation center, White Oak in Florida, when mm-hmm. a lot of this. My happy place. Yeah, I still would move there in a heartbeat. The genesis of like our research when you were in grad school and now with your PhD, you encouraged me to get more involved with exotics and switch my research program. And it's just magical that we're covering one of the species. Because I remember that was the first time I saw them. And I was like, what in the heck was that? And you were all giddy and excited. And, you know, it just it was amazing experience there. So, so seeing these giraffe-like gazelle was amazing. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really important to point out is that they are near threatened. And as populations grow, and of course, things begin to urbanize with roads and agriculture, uh, habitat loss is their their number one threat. And in the past, like, 15 years, so just about two or three generations worth, uh, populations are estimated to have declined by over 25%. Yeah. So, yeah, the Gearnook, get excited. It's <laughs> also known as the Waller's gazelle or the giraffe gazelle. It's really just an unforgettable animal. And we'll put pictures, of course, on our show notes, and hopefully you'll fall in love as well. 
Well, and the reason we're covering this is we have an interview this week with one of my friends. I've mentioned his name a few times. <laughs> he is the infamous- A few times. Because <laughs> <laughs> he always he always rips me. Where, where's my name from? I know. I was going to say more than a few times, yeah. but it's awesome. I love giving our friends a shout out yeah. because they do such awesome animal and conservation work. He does. He does. And in honor of World Giraffe Day, which is the 21st of June next week, we're going to have on Mike Bona, who Yay. is a, he's the giraffe zookeeper at the LA Zoo, but he is now the giraffe project coordinator with Global Conservation Force. So, or project director, I should say. So he reached out a few months ago, said, oh my gosh, Chris, awesome opportunity to work with Mike Veal, Global Conservation Force. We've talked about them before. He said, I am now going to head up the giraffe portion of them. So they're adding giraffes to their sphere of anti-poaching. And Mike is now in charge of that. So we talk about that. We talk about giraffe. We talk about global conservation force, what's going on for the past year, increase in incidents of poaching in Africa, and what they're up to. So fascinating interview this week. So it's funny, he mentioned the Gearnook in the in the podcast because he had taken me around the LA Zoo and, and showed me uh, the collection there. And that was one of the animals we, we, we saw and talked about. And I remember telling him, oh, we're going to have to cover that animal. So here we are today talking about them. Yes, Chris, it's always so great when these amazing, not only animal keepers, but conservationists can come on the podcast and share their passion with us, especially about giraffes and on World Giraffe Days. We've already covered giraffes on, uh, geez, a fair amount of podcasts ago. You're the numbers guy. Um, <laughs> I have no- I re- oh, yeah. We're up to like 220 something. So that was episode 56. Sure. So. Y'all, yeah. Maybe you'll have to remind people on social media because that's that's yeah. a that's a lot of clicking or scrolling on your phone to find that one yeah. from us. Uh, from That's a from the vault. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But <laughs> we will definitely want to celebrate World Giraffe Day by mm-hmm. talking about not necessarily re- related to a giraffe, or maybe not. I don't know. You'll let us know when we get to uh, evolution. But yeah, the the deer nook's going to be an, it's going to be a fun pod. Yeah, and then we uh, last year for World Giraffe Day, we interviewed Giraffe Conservation Foundation, Dr. Julian Fennessy. That's episode one sixty eight. Oh yeah, that yeah. that was like one of our biggest interviews last year. I remember that. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, he's amazing. He was amazing, amazing, amazing. So interview. maybe so, we can link that in the show notes for people yeah. too that have uh, that are um, focused a little bit more on giraffes as well this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ho- full slate there for you. Before we get going, just real quick, hey, check us out on Patreon. Again, you can follow us on Instagram, All Creatures Pod. Follow us on Facebook. You can join our Facebook group, All Creatures Podcast. Uh, Patreon for one cup of coffee a month. You support Angie and I and our mission to educate the masses. I mean, we're just uh, on Podbean alone. I think we're almost at 500,000 downloads. So we've been circulating around the planet doing very, very well. And and our Patreon supporters are a big part of that. So thank you. Yes. And thank you to our listeners who reach out to us via email. We always appreciate your appreciate your kind words, or even hooking us up with people that you know in the industry or that you'd like to have us uh, interview on the podcast. So please keep those coming. We appreciate it. And then also we're going to be gearing up uh, for July Plastic Free Month that we always do here on the podcast. And we'll put out more information via social media. And then of course, um, with our All Creatures Facebook group. But last year we had 
an amazing team. We kick some butt. We reduced our plastic consumption big time. And then we also learned other tricks of the trade on how to just reduce and reuse, which of course is going to be a big key to helping uh, reduce waste in the oceans and then saving species, which is why we're all here. I'm excited about the species we decided on next month. So that it's going to be fun. We'll get through June. We've got some amazing stuff coming in the next couple of weeks. But once we hit July, I think some amazing interviews in July and some awesome species coming your way. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. The hint is it's a lot of time in the water, in the ocean. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Now, describe a gear nook. Darling. Uh, (laughs) Antelope with the – it's – it, it almost I remember the first time I saw him too. I remember because we were getting that that tour at White Oak. And I was like, what in the heck is that? Look at that neck. Sure. It's so obscure. Yeah, Chris. I can't stop looking at him. I have a, a lot of pictures on my notes here. And of course we'll we'll put some on our show notes page. But it's just a beautiful, beautiful antelope. And of course, the cliff notes is that they have this really long neck and thin legs, uh, and almost tiny heads, if you will. But Beyond that, they have these big, beautiful eyes that are really large, especially for, like I said, their smallish head, and just like fanning ears that are also pretty big for its head, uh, which of course are very important when you're uh, when you're a prey animal in the African savanna, and. They have white markings around these these big doe-like eyes, which I think really just make them have a very stunning and striking face. And then, of course, anybody who's a hoofstock or an antelope fan like myself, they have cute little lips that they use for when they're browsing uh, browsing on trees. And we'll talk a lot about that nutrition because they have a very unique way that they feed for an antelope species. And in fact, most of the time you see them feeding, they're going to be standing on their hind legs, which is just super cool. Uh, and then the neck. The neck Chris and I have a whole section dedicated <laughs> to the the, the Derenek neck because it's very long. Uh, and they're typically like a brown, auburn to reddish orange color. But their coat is really beautiful, in my opinion, because it has like two different shades or colorations where brown color, orange brown color over the whole coat. But then along the dorsal or the backbone area, there's a very thick reddish brown color. So they're almost, they're two tone. They're almost three toned when you look at, at them from the side, because on the, along the backbone and down a couple inches, they're this like reddish auburn color. And then through the shoulder barrel to the hip or flank region, they're the brown color that their whole body is. And then of course on their underside, they have a white belly. So, uh, just beautiful when they're standing from the side. And then when they stand up on their hind feet, that's when you can really see their their white or cream underside, uh, undercarriage, if you will. I always call it that with my pets, which makes us laugh at home. Uh, and then, of course, being an antelope species, they the males, not the females, but the males have these strong, thick horns that um, they've been described as like lyre-shaped. Uh, so they like basically curve backwards and then slightly forward. And then they basically have, it almost looks like rings that move all the way up and they're like ribbed, I suppose, is would maybe be a better word, all the way up the horn. Uh, really, I mean, like I said, I, 
I, I, I'm a fan of horns, hoofs and horns, but a really, a really nice looking rack on the males. And of course, as an antelope species and them being horns, they have them for their entire life, which means if they break, they don't grow back. They're not like an antler. And I have dorked out several times before about antlers on yep, this podcast. Yep, yep, yep. So I will spare you all that lesson right now. Just, um, but the, and the females, once again, do not have any horns. Right. That goes back to like the episode, like, 10 or 11. We that did, was like the, one reindeer. of the better days of my life. Yeah. <laughs> just talking for like 20 minutes straight, uninterrupted. Chris was so kind. Just letting me talk about physi- physiology of antlers. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, you did. It was interesting though. It's really interesting. Horns versus antlers. So you can go back to that episode and fast forward to, to listen to, to why those form. Yeah. I mean, the horns, especially two in them, you know, can be up to 17, 18 inches long or up to 45 centimeters. So not small. You no, know, like and they're, really, and they're some thick. Antelope. Yeah, they're yeah. really thick horns, in my opinion, as far as their circumference, if you will. No, not like the sable, though. The sable was like super impressive. Like, wow. Oh, yeah. Well, and the sables yeah. are very unique because males yeah. and females have them. So. Right. Yeah, a few antelope species do. Now, these ones can weigh up to 130 pounds, 60 kilograms. They stand at the shoulder as tall as three and a half feet or 100 centimeters, uh, almost 60 inches long, you know, body length. It's mm-hmm. just that neck. So that neck pushes their head way up high that it's almost like two meters or six feet. Yeah. So they're almost looking at me in the eye, you know, when they stand. Right. But then when they browse or when <laughs> exactly. they're eating, yes. then they stand on their hind legs. <laughs> And they really get some height on them. Yeah, two almost two and a half meters or eight feet, over eight feet they can reach. Mm-hmm. So very, very tall. And it'll be interesting when we talk about necks and evolution and stuff. Now, these antelope are from Africa, like most antelope species. In the Horn of Africa, where Angie really wants to get into to Kenya, Ethiopia, Somalia. Well, I, I have flown. I've flown. I've been in the airport of Nairobi. <laughs> Okay. It was like a layover, so it doesn't really count. Uh, I bought some snacks, and then I had to get back on the plane. But uh, I have been to Tanzania. I did not see any uh, gear nook in um, in the part of Tanzania I was in. But but yeah, that's the southernmost portion of the range is is down there. Right. Yes. And I was I was like in central, the eastern central part of Tanzania. So I yeah, I was probably too far south of their habitat range. God, I can't wait to get there one day. I cannot wait to get there one day. So, be exciting. I know. Maybe for our like five year re- uh, anniversary or something, right? Yeah, our, yeah, when we, oh, I know. Maybe when we hit a million downloads or something like that, or recorded, because of course the software doesn't always record all of them, but yeah. when we get the, at least that number, I don't know. We'll have to plan something. But yes, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. although you might not come back home. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Well, and by that, you know, in the next year or two, the, we should be able to travel. Exactly. Hopefully, once all this pandemic stuff goes away. Now, as a herbivore, I mean, we, we've talked about a lot about this. Why care? They're 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 very important, and especially when they're browsing because they can reach higher. So they're browsing different parts of the plants, and you know, maybe reaching different species of plants. Or yeah, well, I was reading know. in one necropsy, uh, they found like over eighty species in the stomach. 80 species of plant, I should say, mm-hmm. and leaves mm-hmm. in the stomach. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of uh, browse that they forage on, um, depending on which 
ecosystem they're living in. Pagaranooks are also really important because they tend to live in the savanna, but like in the treeless, almost getting close to the deserts of Africa, where it's really dry, right? And so they have they consume a lot of succulent plants as well. But as herbivores that are eating throughout the day, whenever they can find food, they're also pooping throughout the day, right? Um, anybody who's uh, taking care of any type of herbivore hoofstock, whether it's horses, giraffes, zebras, they they go to the bath they go to the bathroom a lot. And where if you you know a dog or a cat, you know maybe will go to the bathroom once or twice a day because they're carnivores or omnivores, depending on uh, your dog's diet. So with this, they're known as good nutrients recyclers in these dry, arid habitats is that they're adding some good stuff, that manure, uh, for lack of better terms, to the soil is really great for uh, the grasses in the areas where they're living. So I mean, that's, see, that's just another thing that we we don't think of. that we Their poop take... is important. Yeah, <laughs> you, you and poop. But especially with a baby now, there's lots of poop. That's always oh, fun. Oh, so much, yes. <laughs> Diaper changes. But it's funny with babies. You're like, oh yes, he's pooping. This is so exciting. I'm so happy for him, and he's happy. It's just like this amazing. <laughs> These things that you we take for granted, right? But for like, yeah. it's like he's really got to think about it. It's like, okay, I, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. <laughs> Anyways, you were saying, Chris, yeah, something no. much more academic than that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but it, from a conservation standpoint, you know, we always look at megafauna and what it means when you take elephants out of an ecosystem. Well, you take their poop out too. Of you course, know, right? That, that affects dung beetles among other insects. I mean, and- I just had one of my um, my mentors here in Florida. Uh, he emailed me. He's like, "Can I please?" Come out to the horse farm and get some uh, some manure. From uh, I've had a little extra with COVID. I've had a little extra time to garden, and so yeah. you know it's like that's like his gold. He was like so happy to come pick pick up the horse manure because it's you know it's organic, it's free, and it works really well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So nutrient recycling and. Mm-hmm. You know, keeping those savannas healthy, and it always goes back to you know, it, it's all, all tied in. But I think Alan Savoy was the one who said they had to kill all the elephants in Angola, so they 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 culled forty thousand because he said they're desertification, mm, right? He was yeah. he he was saying the elephants were causing it because the elephants go and and tear down acacia trees and things like that. Well, when they took the elephants out of the ecosystem desertification picked up mm-hmm. and it, mm-hmm. and he's like oh i made a mistake bring him back bring him back bring him back and he admits it at least he admits it that he made a huge mistake but you know there, there's it's such a complicated web from like we always say from the soil all the way up and that's why each of these animals play their roles and play them well and they're needed because so many other species plants microbes you know, animals, including the insects, all depend on each other. Absolutely. And then, of course, too, from a human economic point of view is uh, people do love seeing them in the wild and on safari. They are really rare, um, depending on where they live. Um, They're just, they're hard, they're hard to come across. But 
ecotourism is huge. And the more we protect these really kind of unique species that people will, I mean, who would not want to get the, the amazing photography shot of a deer nook standing on its hind legs, looking super tall, browsing. Like that's like a dream shot, right? So thinking of them from an ecotourism point of view is another reason why I think we should save them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, to jump off that soapbox and to jump on another that that is more of screaming about something good and talking you know giving some feel good stories i really felt motivated we've been doing all these these interviews with the whitley fund for nature award winners and it's just it gives me so much hope and so i was looking i was thinking okay you know what can i talk about this week and so i came across a story and and I'm sorry we didn't cover it in the Black Mamba episode because we probably should have, even though I kind of went off on the tangent about snake bites, and I think that was more appropriate. But there is an anti-poaching unit called the Black Mambas. Now, what makes this, this gives me a big, big grin, is this is an all-female anti-poaching unit in Africa. That's right. Go, girls. I know. It's awesome. It is Mm -hmm. amazing. It is yeah, it, it gives me a lot of, it makes me smile because, you know, we do talk to, to Mike Veal and Mike Bona and, and then Lauren Ayers, you know, we talked about the pangolins with global conservation force, but when you're, you see the anti-poaching teams, it's usually male dominated. Well, in 2013, they founded the black Mambas and it's in the region near greater Kruger national park. So okay. it's like 62,000 hectares that they're patrolling, the Balul Nature Reserve. So that is where they're assigned to. And right now, the team numbers about 30 women. So they're, they're out there on anti-poaching patrols. And basically, right now, just focused on protecting the rhinos. And they do this through, you know, visual policing. So they go and do their boundary checks, check the fencing, mm-hmm. uh, going at night, doing, you know, night checks, you know, tracking the rhinos, making sure that they are uh, protected. They have, you know, observation posts, listening posts, all of that. They they do roadblocks. I know Mike Veal talks about that, like with the dogs, they, you know you know, what he's doing with his teams. So they're, they're implementing a lot of these strategies to protect the rhinos in the greater Kruger area. So was amazing to read about them. And then I'm going to jump to some of the technology they're using in a second. What is also amazing about this group of women is they have a thing called the Bush baby program. Ooh, Which, tell me more. <laughs> I wanted to drop that hint. So in a couple of weeks, you know, look for mm-hmm. that bush baby, hint, hint. But what it is, is educational programs where they're going and all the children in the region and teaching them about wildlife and, you know, why rhinos are important to the community and the ecology of Africa. And they're reaching out to this next generation. So they've reached almost a thousand children so far through these educational programs around Kruger, because we know that's who's recruited to do the poaching or the locals, the locals make 10 bucks on a rhino horn where on the market it's worth 10 to $20,000 or whatever it is, you know, so the locals are exploited. So they're with the Bush baby program going in and educating the next generation 
which you know we're big advocates of as educators. Absolutely, it's the only way. That's the only way out of this mess. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say the only, but one of the one, one of the ways. Yeah, one of the big ways for sure. Now, what was really fun, and our listeners will will, will love to do this because they can actually be participants. So they're using technology and anti-poaching. And I know we talked about this last week a little bit with the leatherback sea turtle, you know, with the 3D printing eggs and using remote transmitters and in Central America, using drones in Southeast Asia, Malaysia to look for sea turtles. Well, in the bush, they're now using phone cameras because they're so proliferative. We have phone cameras everywhere, right? Like the technology is pretty common Mm -hmm. now. Where they are live streaming animals worldwide now, 24-7. And they've set up a program called Virtual Rangers. And it's it's the program's Wildlife Watch. And so this is in the Balul Nature Reserve with the Black Mambas. Samsung and Africam are helping fund this program. And so what Wildlife Watch is, they just ran a pilot program where viewers from around the world can monitor these cameras. And then if they see any suspicious activity, like along fence lines, if they hear gunshots or anything, they can notify the Rangers and then the Rangers can rush to the area. So now they have, they have all of these cameras set up in this reserve where you can go online and watch them and then participate in this virtual ranger program now to do this you can go i'll put the links on the show notes but there's wildlife-watch.com or you can go to africam.com so a-f-r-i-c-a-m yeah that's pretty easy to remember Mm -hmm. yeah you can follow them on social media you can go in and sign up when they do launch the next phase to become a virtual ranger and anywhere, so me in New Zealand, uh, friends in Australia, I'm thinking of Chantel or other friends down there, and Lee, you know, in Sydney, our friends over there, they can sign up for this stuff. It's it it just makes me Angie. It just makes me feel like we're we're turning the tide against a lot of this. That when you have a Sammy Safari or a Lucy Kemp or some of these other folks that we're talking to on the ground there in Africa. Nakulu Farm and the folks you talk to in South America, it, it gives me a lot of hope that as much as the pressures wildlife are feeling, there are a lot of people out there fighting back. And now something there like are. this using technology. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's heroes around every corner. And I mean, especially too with technology and social media, everybody can be a hero just by educating people that, you know, I never heard of it. Garanook or Jiranook or however you want to say it, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, by sharing these pictures because it's super adorable. Oh my god, it could have its own TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, uh, but yeah, I, I think that that's what's really remarkable, and I I do appreciate the good stories. The Black Mambas are amazing, and you'll have to add that to the show notes for people Absolutely. that want to find out more about what they're doing because it really is. Uh, it's it's we need we need more of that, and it's good to know that they are out there for sure. Well, now that they're on my radar, you know, we can maybe try to reach out to them or mm-hmm. somebody that's helping run this program to come on and talk about the technology and how it's helping, you know, and, and give stories because, 
using technology is, is going to help a lot of, to protect these animals. Now, jumping into evolution with the gear nook, it, it, some of this is a little bit review for a lot of people. It, it's an even-toed ungulate, so the artodactyla. So our pigs, our hippos, antelopes, deer, giraffes, camels, sheep, goats, cattle, bovids. So that's the order, over 270 species in that. Now, antelope, you go back to, I guess it would be sable antelope. Pronghorn antelope is, is its own family. Because I remember when you look up antelope evolution, it's all on the pronghorn because it's such a obscure. Unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Out Here there. in North America, second fastest land mammal after the cheetah. The cheetah? I know. They're amazing. But most antelope or the true antelope are in the family Bovidae. So 143 species, bison, water buffalo, the antelope, goats, muskox. I love all of them. You're speaking my language right now. My heart heart goes pitter patter. Well, you you like the odd toes too. Well, that's, I mean, yes, at all. That's my heart goes triple pitter patter, but yes, all of them. The rhinos and Mm -hmm. the the equids and all of them. Now, the subfamily is antelopinae. So this is our antelope, our gazelles, black buck, gear nooks, uh, spring box. So, and even the central Asian ones and about 91 species. So that breaks them down. Now the, the, the gear nook is Lidocranius wallery. And they did propose two subspecies, but there's still arguments. So I guess they haven't had the, the genetic studies yet to kind of fix to figure this out. So there's the Northern or Southern gear nook, but still generally considered as a single species. Now, interesting the the gear nook's closest relative is the Dama gazelle. So what would they have in common? Well, um, horns and necks, necks, long necks. Yeah. They're, they're, they have longer, they have longer necks too. Not as long as the, the gear nook, but yeah, the Dama gazelle. So in the antelope family, now you're probably asking yourself, okay, I don't remember giraffes. I haven't, that was episode 150 something ago. You know, where do giraffes fall into this are because they both have long necks. So you think, oh, maybe they're somewhat related. No, they're not. It's more convergent evolution where giraffes really took off with the necks, but the gear nooks are kind of following them behind. So giraffes are their own family, giraffidae. They're more closely related to pronghorns than they are with gear nooks. So giraffes evolved their long necks for the last seven and a half million years, where gear nooks probably the last million years. Okay. uh, They've gotten the long necks. Yeah. So that was a question I had was just how close they were. Now, quick, real bovids. You've covered this before. They've, Emerged from Africa about 23 million years ago. Interesting fact, all male bovids have horns, where some females do, depending on the species. And the majority of bovids are in Africa. You know, Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Another pretty... reason why it's, I feel so at home there. <laughs> so the, the earliest bovids were, were like cows, wild cattle, uh, bison, elands. And then antelope emerged much later, but there's not much on antelope evolution. There just isn't a ton. 
around 15 million years ago, I found one paper talking about this and it was basically, they were talking about how it was an interesting read, but how the antelope changed Africa from mainly forest to savanna. That the explosion of herbivores, particularly antelope, about 15 million years ago, is when Africa started losing its forests and becoming more savanna. So I thought that was that was pretty pretty interesting. Well, and that's why I love doing this podcast, because I didn't realize that there were the northern and southern subspecies, or potentially like you said. Uh, but then I also learned about a creature called a, a dibatag, a D-I-B-A-T-A-G, uh, which it, it's a it's an antelope species. It's looks very similar to a gyranuk. Um, it's found more in eastern, uh, southeastern Ethiopia, and then like the central and eastern regions of Somalia. And they have similar facial features. The neck isn't quite as long, uh, but so of course I had to go down a rabbit hole, and be like, I have never heard of a. a Debatag or Clark's gazelle, yeah. some people call it, or Debatag. I don't know. Um, and but uh, researchers think that this is an example of sympatric speciation. And I get to teach ecology, so we talk about the different types of speciation. The sympatric speciation is where there was like this original population, like you know, thousands, millions of years ago, and then somehow probably like a genetic polymorphism or something genetically happened. And then a population started to diverge in some type of trait, maybe a longer neck, slightly shorter neck, different horns, whatever it was. And they're all still in the same range, right? Like they don't necessarily leave or go far away. Uh, so they're in the same range, but then they're, they're different enough that they might interbreed sometimes, but they typically don't. And they'll start to compete for resources. So the other population or now species will diverge and basically move somewhat out of the range. So there ends up being two ranges of species that they don't, they sometimes cross, but they usually don't cross. And then over a long, long, long period of time, they become these two really distinct species. So anyways, sympatric evolution. <laughs> that's awesome. I learned something. I learned something. Yeah. Well, and I never just heard this debatag or this Clark's gazelle. So, and they, uh, they do have a long neck that's really striking, um, mm -hmm. like the Gearnook. So cool stuff. I, evolution. I, Gotta love you were it. Talking, yeah. I Googled and they don't have many photos of them. They must be very elusive. That's yeah. what I was thinking too. Yeah. I, I I went down, I went to Chris. That's yeah. why we're podcast partners. Yeah. <laughs> I went down that same exact uh, rabbit hole because I'm like, how? I mean, trust me. There's a lot that I don't know, and even with animals with horns and antlers, there's I'm still learning all the time. But I can't believe that I yeah I had never heard of this and um, mm -hmm. this, this creature. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, fun. There fun you go. Times. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always learn something every week. We learn something. That's why we do it. Now. Going back to the gear nook, the it lives about eight to 10 years in the wild, 13, 14 years under human care. Found this interesting. They only run, you know, up to 35 miles per hour or 56 kilometers per hour. 
So slower than than other gazelle. I know we we did Springbok was like f- almost fifty five. They oh, they're fast. fast. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But you know, I'd imagine that skeletal system, that long neck, those spindly legs, makes it hard for them to to run much faster than that. Well, and I think they specialize more on hiding. That was that's kind of. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. That's the route that they went down. And they're like, okay, we're not going to be the fastest guy out there. Then maybe we can right. camouflage. And really, when you look. When you look at their photos, a lot you know within the African savanna and the dry grasses, or I mean, they really do blend in quite nicely. Oh, and they got those long necks that you know they can telescope around, catch sound with those large ears, large eyes. Mm-hmm. So to, to to catch the predators, get near them, and you know they can take off because they're always in scrublands, right? They're not in deep deep forest or anything. Correct. Yeah, it's usually mostly yeah. treeless or yeah. yeah, trees here and there that they'll browse off of, but yeah, not not a dense forest like uh you would think of like at the rainforest, no nothing like that. Right. Right. So that's probably why they're able to survive pretty well. Now, talking about the neck because that is like what the the most unique feature about them. How many vertebrae do they have? Ooh, how many vertebrae do we have? <laughs> exactly. <I just laughs> Answer your you. question with a question, yeah. right? That's usually yeah, not a okay. good approach, but yeah, yeah. Seven. The answer is seven. Yeah, yeah. So they have mm-hmm. just like giraffes, just like us. Most cervical C C one C two. Yeah, and so all the way on. down to seven. So they mm-hmm. have seven vertebrae. So they don't have extra bones. Giraffes don't have extra bones. They're just big. They're right. massive vertebrate. Then like with the, with the giraffes, they're massive. They're massive. So there was a study out there that, that looked at gear nook necks and growth. And really what they find is during the fetal growth and then when they're juveniles, that's when the bones just grow and they get longer and longer. So if you look at the skeleton, you know, it, it's pretty amazing. The, those vertebrae are, 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 are big. They're substantial. Yeah. Yeah. It's really you looking and we always talk a lot about in my anatomy and physiology classes, whether it's of the horse or humans or whatever, just like form to function, right? Like this is how things are made structurally. And so how does that help them? This is how they're formed. What is the function? How does that help them function? Right. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then another anomaly compared to other antelope who other antelope are, are mostly grazers. You know, they go and graze on they predominantly grass, grass mm-hmm. and they'll eat some bush and berries and stuff like that. But the crowns on their teeth are much higher. Gear nooks have really low crown, really low tooth crowns. And that's because they're more of a browser. So they they don't need, be, because the higher the crown, it just, it, it their teeth wear down as a grazer faster versus a browser. Mm-hmm. Who is is eating more leaves and not getting grit and you know stuff off the the floor, where mm-hmm. you know, so their teeth don't wear down as quick, so they didn't need to develop higher crown teeth. So there's just something different. Well, Chris, as a browser, they do have that long neck to reach up higher and 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 get different leaves, better leaves. But they also have this cool adaptation where they stand on their hind legs. And will spend ample amounts of time on their hind legs, reared up in a reared up position uh, with their forelimbs, these skinny little forelimbs just kind of flopping around. Uh, 
it almost looks like sometimes they, they'll use the forelimbs too to help grab at stuff. Uh, not necessarily to the skill set that like a chimpanzee and a termite mound would do, but perhaps using the forelimbs a little bit to help steer these leaves towards their mouths. And they're all doing that balancing on their hind legs and they're standing like straight up. Okay. Not, eh, not half over. Like if you think of a horse rearing where I've had a horse rear up on me and if they go straight up, they flip over. Flip over. Yeah. I was gonna say, <laughs> so, I mean, luckily the horse and I were safe after this happened. And then we both looked at each other like, okay, let's yeah. never do that again. Right, right. And we didn't. That was Miss Rosie. Bless her heart. But in order for the gear nook to stand on these hind legs, they are very strong. So they're thin, but strong hind legs. And then they also have special, specially modified vertebrae to help them do this throughout their entire backbone. So you were talking just about the cervical, right? The mm-hmm, first seven mm-hmm. of the neck, of the neck region of the vertebrae. But don't forget that we still have this thoracic vertebrae that basically are around the rib cage, right? Thoracic center regions of your body. And then the lumbar or the lower vertebra. So the modifications of their vertebra throughout their body and these strong hind legs, they can, you know, they can really basically almost reach up and pull down branches with these front limbs. It's just incredible. Yeah. And I, I just remember going back to giraffe, how they evolved to get longer necks. So the longer necks, they were able to get more forage. They were more successful. And then, you know, they kept going higher as trees kept going higher. Sure. You know, so, mm-hmm. so gear nook is, is like kind of evolved that neck to be able to, to find that niche where they can browse on things and leaves that, that others can't. Because like you said, Angie, they vary diet, what, over 80 species of different plants that they've found that they they browse and eat on. Yeah. I mean, they love, of course, who doesn't love tender leaves and shoots uh, and buds and fruits and things like this, but they're also well adapted from these dry, arid regions to eat succulents and eat a variety of bushes and shrubs uh, and the trees that most other animals in that region cannot reach. Right, right. And and they get all their water needs from their brows. They don't have to drink water. Yes. So. Well, and as I mentioned too earlier in their podcast, people probably like, why is she talking about their like nose and lips? Like she mm-hmm. must really be a hoofstock dork. <laughs> And yes, yes, my friends and I, when I worked at the zoo, we would talk about who had the cutest nose, who had the biggest nose at the zoo. Uh, that went to Kublatakin. He had the this, the biggest kind of nose muzzle. Uh, I just, uh, I just loved it. I mm-hmm. miss it to this day. But with the deer nook, they have a very dainty. They're a very dainty looking an- antelope, and they have a pointed snout and basically this long upper lip and tongue can also help them grab leaves. And it's not a long tongue necessarily like a giraffe or an okapi that you think of, but the shape of their mouth and their lips also help them basically get leaves in that thorny acacia vegetation, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. With all those thorns. So they've got to have these, uh, this ability, uh, to help navigate that. And they don't like to eat the thorns because who does? Yeah, not me. No thorns. Thank you. Now, really quick before we jump to behavior, just the predator list. I mean, obviously, cheetahs can run them down. Uh, leopards might catch them. Hyenas, lions, painted dogs, servals. So wow, it's a species okay. we have yet to mm-hmm. cover. Uh, you know, the, probably the young. And then uh, large eagles uh, go for the young. 
And then Honey Badger? Like, come on. Honey Badger don't care. <laughs> It'll eat anything. Honey Badger going to catch a gear. I guess he'd go for the young. Yeah, probably. But <laughs> Take Honey Badger. Oh, unbelievable. You, you little turd. But yes, Chris, I mean, you bring up a good point as far as their ecosystem role is a lot of animals do consume them, right? So on the food chain, they're they're in the middle region and um, provide food for a lot of animals. Again, you're right. Just they're they're very they're very very critical. Now behavior, you know, what are some of the things that they have seen them do? Well, talking about predators, and I think you might have mentioned it earlier, but that long neck and big eyes and big ears helps them be alerted if there are any changes in their environment and their typical response is not going to be to flee or run because as as you mentioned chris they're not that fast uh but they can hide and so and they'll also freeze so if there's any danger approaching them they're going to be more likely to just hold tight and freeze and just hope that they can camouflage in and in regards to their social behavior, they're going to be a little different than some of the uh, other species in the gazelle family is Garanook typically live in small groups. So they're not going to be these like huge populations of them out on the African plains. In general, there's going to be female bands, if you will. So pretty small, five to 10 individuals that are typically related uh, adults and young. And with males, males are mostly solitary and they can be pretty territorial, especially during the mating season, which we'll talk about here in a second. And in general, they're going to be somewhat on their own. And so uh, they don't blend with the females unless it's like breeding season. But there are also groups of young males, which are called bachelor groups. And so those are males that have just been weaned. And they're trying to figure out how to how to act. <laughs> think of maybe as think of it as like a uh, think of it maybe as like a male teenager, young twenty, something like that, right? They don't have enough dominance and strength to actually have breeding rights, and so they just all kind of hang out together and probably complain about it, right? Um, <laughs> but when they are together, especially these small groups of females, they use a lots of different vocalizations to talk to each other. Uh, They'll do a very loud bleeding sound, if you think maybe like a deer species, when there's a lot of danger. They make a buzz sound, which I tried to find on the internet, which I couldn't, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I'll have to, uh, maybe one of our keeper friends, if they work yeah. with- uh, Mike Bona. Yes, <laughs> yes. Mike. So they make yeah. a buzzing sound when they're uh, like alarmed. And then uh, they can also do a whistle when they're annoyed, which- I, it's just funny because I always think I always whistle like when I'm happy. So uh, uh-huh. they'll make a little whistle sound. And then, of course, a female to her young, they have a very, very strong bond. And so, so these two will make soft, softer, bleeding, happy noises to each other to communicate. And then doing these cool buzzings and whistles uh, and bleats are not the only ways that the Giranook communicate. They also have a lot of scent communication. Uh, if you look at a picture closely, they, like I mentioned, they have the white around their big doe eyes. Well, this white fur around there is what's called preorbital glands. Uh, they emit a really gooey, stinky, tar-like substance. And by stinky, I mean more that it's musky and that 
And the other Gearnooks know to stay away from it, whether it's territorial and things like this. But they also have some scent glands on their knees and also on their hooves. So smell is important out there in the bush. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Especially when it's time for breeding. And um, in this region of Africa, like you mentioned the horn, there really isn't thought to be like a breeding season because births can occur throughout the year. And from what researchers know is Gernooks are typically uh, polygonous. And so males will attempt to mate as many females as they can um, when she comes into estrus. But Chris, what I had a little fun with this week is their mating or courtship rituals. It's actually pretty complex. And so typical to a lot of hoofstock that we've talked about, when male and female uh, Gernook encounter each other, uh, The male can basically test the waters, if you will, by uh, smelling her urine. And he does this by performing what we call the Fleming test, where he sticks his nose up to really just open up uh, his uh, Vermano nasal region and uh, just smell the different pheromones that are in there. And, you know, it's like a, a, a test to see if she's receptive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, we, we've seen that a lot, but what I think is really unique and uh, just kind of uh, fun to visualize with uh, the gear nook is that when the male's doing this, the female acts really like put off, like she'll like, she'll put her own nose in the air and she'll, she'll, lay her ears back, which we know is a sign of like aggression in horses, right? Uh, she'll act like she's really mad. And the male will like display his horns and do like a neck sideways position, uh, probably as a like, hey, I don't, I don't want to fight. Uh, I'm here for other things. But the best part is if the female is receptive, the male will start scent marking her on the thigh, like, so on her legs. And he'll do this with the, um, his preorbital glands. So underneath his eyes. So he'll basically, you know, rub his, his face on her thighs, but then he'll continue to follow her and kind of do what they guard her. They call it mate guarding, like not let anybody near her. And he will actually use his front legs to kick the female in the thigh region. So that is, that's when he's in love. So if you're a female Gernook and you're getting kicked in the thigh by a male, that means he loves you. <laughs> okay. But I, I don't, they, I, I don't want to speculate because uh, this is not a, a hoofstock species I specialize in, but they do have glands, um, scent glands on their, uh, in between their hooves. So he, I think it's another way that he might be trying to mark her. I don't know. Or I don't know why else he would be doing that. Um, because he, he definitely rubs his, his preorbital glands, his face on her thighs, but why then he proceeds to kick her, I guess is still a mystery. So, uh, but she, she doesn't mind it. Um, I mean, maybe she gets a little bit annoyed. Maybe that's why her ears are laid back, but in the same instance, she's, she's typically, if she's in estrus, she's very receptive. And, um, and once a breeding occurs, uh, the female gear is going to be pregnant for about five to six months and she'll produce typically one offspring. And of course, even with those long legs, um, the baby gear can walk within minutes of being born. And 
similar to a copy, and I think deer here in North America, what they do is the females fully responsible for raising the offspring. They're really good mamas. So the mama will hide the young in the bushes or tall grass while she goes off and feeds. And then, but she always comes back to check on the baby throughout the day. And she'll continue to nurse her young until they're about a year old. If they're a female, if they're a male, he's not weaned until he's two years old, a year and a half to two years. That's a long time, right? For, yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, Chris. I mean, of course they're getting nutrients and they're they're foraging. I mean, they're not, they're not solely uh, nursing, but to be weaned, it's kind of when you just, you know, you push the baby out of the nest, right? Like like get get out of here. And so, yeah, with a, with a, a female offspring, uh, we'll stay with mom until about a year and males for whatever reason, uh, stay one and a half to two years old. So when we think about, um, conservation and the fact that there's less than a hundred thousand of them and that they're currently threatened, uh, that a female is only going to reproduce every other year if she's throwing males, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which that's mm-hmm. very different than other antelopes. I mean, usually most antelope species have, you know, one calf a year, yeah, more or less, uh, right. depending on their gestation period minimally. So yeah, just really, really interesting biology there. And I, I don't, unfortunately, I'd love to know more about it, but um, that's really all I could find. So, well, and I think that's why, Gear nooks are under human care, you know, at, at White Oak, which is a premier, you know, wildlife conservation center at different, you know, zoological parks around the country, you know, San Diego Zoo, LA Zoo. Yeah, learning, for, the, for the longest time, yeah, they, they did the not science. do well under human care. They did not breed well. They did not do well. Um, but yet, thanks to some of these really awesome facilities, uh, I think they're learning more about how to care for them and how to to help keep the genetic lifeboat here, uh, at least in the U S and mm-hmm. probably in other countries throughout the world. Well, and just in such a unique antelope species too, you know, where a lot of antelope are doing fine in Africa. Here's one that's not. So like you said, they they've had a massive decline over the last three generations and they're, you know, they're close to being uplisted to vulnerable, you know? Right. So, you know, they're on their way to extinction. I mean, it's it's not when we say they're threatened, vulnerable, but if they're on that list, they're at a downward trajectory or they're at risk of extinction. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, that's the bottom line with it. So, so who is out there fighting for gear nooks? Well, of course, Chris, I have to give a big shout out this week to White Oak mm-hmm. Conservation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's where my happy spot, our happy spot. So yeah, they do an amazing job. They can be found at www.whiteoakwildlife.org. Uh, they have Gearnook um, on grounds on their like hundreds of thousands of thousands of acres. They now uh, are home to several retired Asian elephants from yeah, that uh, we, we've used for our research. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so just they're just incredible. Uh, but yeah, back in 2010, uh, they were able to produce. Um, offspring of gear nook through artificial insemination. And so 
And since 2010, they've been able to utilize this technology to produce more calves. And uh, it's just, and of course, learn more about their biology and natural history and how to take care of this really unique species that has uh, really different dietary requirements compared to most antelopes, right? With them being a browser. Um, and then of course, learning more about their behavior because they're very shy in nature. Right. And then of course at white oak conservation, it's, it's not only about learning more about the animals there on grounds under human care, but they also have a partnership with the U S department of agriculture and the old Gogi ranch in Likapia, Kenya. Mm-hmm. They work with their African partners towards conserving uh, the Garanuk both under human care and then, of course, in the wilds of Africa. So just pretty amazing place. place. Crystal put uh, <laughs> www.whiteoakwildlife.org. Yes. Follow them on social media yeah. if you haven't. You you can thank me later. Uh, it's just they're doing a lot of really, really incredible things there. It is just a wildlife oasis here in uh, northeastern Florida. No, it is. It's it's amazing. And on the, the web page, it's on the right-hand side at the top now is where we list the conservation organization with the link, and you can click on that. I mean, it's just, it harkens back to Jesse Golden, who we always talk about being birds, but Jesse worked there. I have a picture. Jesse and I laugh about this. It's a smally wild ass knockdown. I was getting blood for, I was sequencing genes in a study for them, working with them. And in this knockdown photo... I took Jesse's in the background. This is before Jesse and I became really good friends. And now here we are because we, we met up in, in New Zealand and that's where we became good friends. So he was a, a copy keeper there for a long time. Beautiful place. They do amazing work. You know, again, part of that feel good story. There's a lot of people in the world fighting for these animals and our listeners. Thank you for listening, for caring, for sharing, caring, you know, sharing is caring. That's right. So share these episodes, you know, tell people, oh my goodness, you've never seen this animal, you know, listen to this episode. You learned so much, but thank you so much for listening. I'm excited for what we have ahead of us. We have some amazing few weeks. I mean, every week's amazing, but I'm really excited for a lot of the species we have slated uh, coming your way. Absolutely, Chris. It's going to be a wonderful summer. And Chris and I will be providing you more information about Plastic Free July. You do not have to go completely plastic free. It's just a fun group trying to reduce our plastic consumption and talk about alternatives. And so anyways, we'll have more information on that to come. Thank you again for listening. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.